0: Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this episode of Risk, you'll hear Tara Clancy.
1: The guy's standing up there. The girl drops down onto all fours. She crawls in. He goes, what do you think of that, bitch? She woofs. He goes, well, take it.
0: That and more. But before that... You know, getting your mailing and shipping done can seem like a no-win situation. Going to the post office takes a valuable time. Leasing a postage meter, that's expensive with hidden fees, multi-year commitments. But we know a better way, Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package right from your desk using your own computer and printer. You can even get special postage discounts that you can't find at the post office. Plus, Stamps.com is more powerful than a postage meter at just a fraction of the cost. You can save up to 80% compared to a postage meter, and you'll avoid those time-consuming trips To the post office. We use stamps.com at risk and the story studio, and we love it. And right now, you can use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a no risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. Now, here's the show. (laughs) Hello, kids. This is Risk. The show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Dick Hyman behind me now. It's been so long since we featured the music of good old Dick Hyman on the show. And that's because today's episode is called... Now, this, right now, you're hearing me, is speaking in a hotel room in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, because we just had our amazing live show here in Pittsburgh. And listen, we're coming soon to Atlanta, to Albuquerque, to Minneapolis, and to Seattle before this year is over, so please go to risk slash and find out when we're coming to your town, Atlanta, we're there November 6th, Albuquerque, November 13th, Minneapolis, December 4th, Seattle the 12th. Don't forget we also need pitches. For all of those uh, shows as well, there's pitch deadlines for all of them, so just get us your goddamn pitches as soon as you can, folks. Risk-show.com slash submissions, and you might be in one of those upcoming shows. But let's get to this New York show that we did recently called Dicks.
2: Dicks, 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 Dicks.
0: Welcome to Risk. How's everyone doing tonight? That's great. Listen, folks, if you've never been to Risk before, Risk is the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share in public. So these are the kind of stories you will not hear on NPR. Risk is a show where anything goes. Nothing is too filthy, nothing is too emotional, nothing is too uh, politically incorrect. So get ready to go all over the emotional spectrum tonight. And do you know what the theme is tonight? Dick! Dick, 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 dick is the theme of the night! And as I was preparing... What the hell is everyone's... What you, that dick's really got everyone up in a... a swell out there. Uh, I know I'm going to have some friends who will criticize me for calling the show dicks tonight because it's a little bit hypocritical of me. You see, I am a man who just loves anuses and butts. <laughs> I love anuses and butts. I have a very long history of loving anuses and butts. And there was an episode of Risk a couple years back called Kevin Goes to Kink Camp, where for about three minutes, I kind of waxed poetic about how much I loved anuses and butts in that show. And then I got really indignant about how dare people use a word like asshole. To denigrate! To to suggest that something might be wrong with someone or somehow that's bad. A Couple years later, here I am going dick, 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 dick. <laughs> but, you know, in fairness, I'm just not that into dicks, so fuck 'em. <laughs> No, in fact, tonight's stories will be about, some will be about actual penises, some will be about jerks, and some will not have anything to do with the theme, which is always the way it is with Risk, (laughs) because I really don't care all that much. Um... One of the reasons that I kind of gave up on the whole, oh my gosh, you shouldn't say the word asshole, yada, yada. It's so hard to change the way you use words, and it's even harder to change the way other people use words. I don't know if you've heard this, but Merriam-Webster's just announced that they're adding a second definition for the word literally. Definition number one is going to literally be the meaning of the word literally. Definition two is just one word, figuratively. (laughs) the, The second definition of the word literally is now the opposite of the literal meaning of the word literally. I, I, what? Those dicks change dictionary? Oh, those (laughs) dicks. It's almost ironic, but uh, we'd have to check what that means this year as well. Now, uh, my own dick is quite a remarkable one, Um, (laughs) but in a way that I find very horrifying. Uh, You see... You've probably heard the expression that some men are growers, not showers. Well, I am that way to about the most extreme extent you could possibly imagine. When I'm erect, I'm fine. I'm, you know, I'm above average. I get compliments. It's no worries. When I am not erect... I am the size of a grape. <laughs> it's horrifying. It's, it's almost like a magic trick, <laughs> like the difference. And the thing of it is, I have this reputation now for being a guy who's super comfortable with myself. But listen, I know exactly where the uncomfortability started. I was that guy in high school. Everyone had that guy in high school, who would take off all his clothes at the parties, right? It was junior year. My friend Mark Tragesser was having a big farm party. Out on his farm, we were lighting a bonfire, everyone was drinking beer, and I was like, it's the perfect time to take off all my clothes. So I'm sauntering around, making people uncomfortable in the little, you know, circles of conversation. At one point, I even peed amongst some people while we were chatting. But at another point, this guy named Steve Haggerty walked up and he said, Jesus, Allison, you're hung like a gerbil. And it was kind of like that moment in the story of Adam and Eve where I was like, oh my, I am. <laughs> Oh, no. (laughs) So, nowadays, I still find myself at these kink events and these nudist events and these orgies. And I'm like, my God, I'm 44 years old. Here's the thing. You think... We in these storytelling shows, most of them, people love to arrive at a big, you know, learning point at the end, right? Of, uh, oh, now I've put all that behind me, and I'm a confident guy all round. Or, you know, now there's not an iota of racism left in me. <laughs> Uh, But no, the fact is, I'm at 44, they say that between 35 and and 45, you're supposed to have that turn into maturity, and I'm getting very nervous. (laughs) It definitely has not happened yet. I'm noticing that there are these complexes and neuroses that I've been, you know, worried about my whole life, and no matter what I do, they just don't go away, you know? I'll be at kink camp, and everyone's naked the whole damn week, and someone will say, hey, Kev, come on, let's take a naked stroll down to the pool, and I'll be like, okay, but don't look at me! I get so embarrassed at Naked events about not being erect, that I can't get erect! So I don't know what to do, I guess Viagra is the answer, but I do think that one of these days on my gravestone they'll probably have to write, here lies Kevin Allison. He was one kinky motherfucker. But you know what? He never really got over the fact that when he wasn't hard, that guy was hung like a gerbil. All right, folks, so we have, like I said, we're all over the spectrum tonight. We have funny stories, sad stories, horrifying stories, and a lot of great people. Some people that we have for the first time and some who are old favorites. And the first I'd like to bring up is a very dear friend of mine, someone I admire so much. He is a faculty member at our school. Risk, you know, Risk is a dual company. We're both the show and a school the story studio David teaches for us now he has his show bad kid his one-man show it's about to be in Austin and he has a memoir of bad kid that is coming out next year it's a fabulous fabulous show please welcome the stage David <laughs>
3: This totally isn't my story, but I love what Kevin was saying. And I had to have an MRI the other day, and it was like like a tundra in that little horrible tube of nightmares. Uh, and I realized there were cameras on me that like, the technicians watch, and I kept getting really worried that my dick just looked really tiny, the way it was covered in my smock. So I was trying to think of something just arousing enough. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't want to have full flagpole in the MRI tube, but I just wanted a little girth. Anyway, um, I just don't, I don't know why I told you that. A few years ago, I was walking my neighborhood in Greenpoint. I was walking my little dog, Charlie. Uh, He's uh, half Jack Russell, half Chihuahua. He's the most Instagram dog in the whole world. Uh, I love this little dog. And I would had him about six months, and we just got over that honeymoon period where no matter what the dog wants or needs or how it inconveniences you, it's not annoying. It was like the first night. It was like a hot, hot summer night. I had just come home from a party. I was tipsy, and I was like, I was basically looking at the dog, saying over and over again, make poopy make poopy. I have no empirical evidence that that works or it yields poop, but I say it just to look like a moron to all my neighbors. And I'm saying this over and over again and finally he poops. We turn the corner. We're so close to my apartment when I see another guy coming down the street with another little dog. Charlie gets excited. He starts like wagging from the, his rib cage, you know, like his whole body and the other dog does. And I'm like, great. Now I have to stand and talk to this other guy because we each have these beasts on the ends of ropes that want to smell each other's assholes. Um, <laughs> And they do, and they start sniffing each other and uh, have to make you know, small talk with this guy. I'm like, oh, it's a hot night. And he's like, Yeah, it's a really, really hot night. He's like, I was just in Texas, so it's really hot. Oh, I'm from Texas. Oh, really? Oh, what part? I was like, Well, I love Austin, but I'm really from San Antonio. I went to both places just I was like, Oh, did you like it? And he was like, Yes, they had the best Mexican food. And I'm like, Oh my god, I miss the Mexican food so much. You can't get good guacamole in New York. I know, don't you love the margaritas? Yes, I love margaritas. What do you drink? He's like, I love picklebacks. And I'm like, What are picklebacks? And he's like, It's when you do a shot of whiskey and then you go to some Williamsburg place where they have some artisanal brine and then you take it. like $17 and I'm like that sounds grotesque but before this I liked you. Um, his name is Kevin. He's this really great guy. He's probably like in his early 50s, salt and pepper hair, really blue eyes and we're having this great conversation and I'm like you know we should really hang out sometime. I live right there and he's like oh well me and my girlfriend and, and our dog live right over there and at this point like our dogs have become best friends. They're sort of watching the block sitting side by side, their tails wagging just kind of like you know looking out for criminals. And um, I was like, why don't we meet sometime and go for a drink? And he's like, well, uh, I am about to move away. And I said, oh, well, that's great. Where are you going? And he's like, I'm going to Belize. I'm like, really? And he's like, yeah, I've been into scuba diving my whole life and I've always taken vacations there. And I'm just going to move and retire there. And I'm like, great. You're making your American dream come true of leaving America. That's awesome for you. Congratulations. <laughs> I said, your girlfriend must be so excited. And he says, well, actually, Her and the dog aren't coming with me. And I just, I don't know what to say. And then he says, I have terminal cancer and I have six months to live and this is how I've chosen to end my life. And I'm very, very quiet I don't know what to say. And I get really, really nervous because he starts to become super apologetic and tearful saying, I can't believe I just unloaded on you. I don't know why I told you that. We just met. I feel so bad. And I'm getting so anxious for him that I finally just say, it's okay. I'm a storyteller. <laughs> At which point, like, the ghost of myself sort of steps out in front of me, and then I kick myself in my own ass. And then I become a nervous wreck. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. It's not what I meant. You, you just, you know, confronted me with your mortality. And I said, I have a hobby. Like, I didn't mean that in, like, a, in a weird, you know. And I'm, like, trying to explain myself, and the wheels are turning. And finally, he's like, no, 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 no. I get it. I actually really, really get it. I'm really into storytelling, I listen to all these podcasts and I guess what happened right now is I met you and I wanted to tell you because I've been telling my family and my friends and my loved ones for months about this. And they cry and sob and some of them scream and I have to hold them. And there was something so nice about just telling you, this stranger that I don't know from Adam, this really personal thing about my life. And I said, yeah. I guess that's what I meant when I said I'm a storyteller. I teach storytelling. I just started and I think the world would be a lot better place if everyone told each other their stories. And he said, yeah. And we sat there in silence and it had been like 45 minutes that we had been talking. And he said, well, I have to go. I said, OK. And he hugged me and I said goodbye. And I felt like I was really saying goodbye to this man. And then we parted ways. And I walked home. And immediately when I turned the corner, I started sobbing, and my dog had never seen me sob. And if you've ever really, really broken down in front of an animal, they don't understand. There's not a connection. They're just like, what? I don't understand. What's going going on? Why? And I got home and my fiance was home and I just had a full on breakdown. I was like, you know, I've lived in New York for 15 years and my default face is like, leave me alone. But what if there's connections I could be making? Because like, I mean, you know, like, it was only because we have the dog now that I had the guy had the dog. And then we talked and then I realized he's special. He's special because he's dying. But the problem is we're all dying, Jack. We're all dying. We're all special. (laughs) It was like this endless Alan Ball scripted monologue. It just went on and on. The next day, I did what you do when you meet someone terminally ill and you don't know them from Adam. You befriend them on Facebook. Uh, I befriended Kevin and he approved my request, but in like that way that someone that doesn't know you well enough, they let you kind of in, you know, like you can see some photos, but you, there's only like five posts for the last year of their life, you know? and. I kept up with these posts over the next six months, and I could actually sort of see through the photos Kevin's journey to Belize. Um, The pictures slowly changed, there was an airport picture, there was a beach picture, there were beautiful trees, there was a blue sky, and then there were the most amazing series of scuba diving pictures, these underwater photos of like pink coral and schools of fish, these crystalline blue, beautiful, beautiful photos. And in about six months, they stopped updating. And I told myself that I knew what had happened to Kevin. Now, over those six months, I had been really ill. I had Crohn's disease at the time. I weighed 150 pounds and I was 117 then. I had Johnny Depp cheekbones. Uh, people would be like, you look great. And I'm like, thanks, I'm dying. Um,
2: <laughs>
3: it was in this space that I really, really f- discovered how much I enjoyed storytelling. And I started teaching storytelling more. And, In this process I would actually like tell this anecdote to people I wouldn't tell it as a story because it wasn't mine but I would I would tell people who were struggling with telling their own stories about this as a way to express how important it is to share with people and I really do believe that thing that I said the world would be a better place if everyone told each other their stories now. When I found out that Kevin had passed away, I I sent this uh, message to him, which seems so strange to me now to think of it. I sent a Facebook message uh, just saying, are you there? You know, crickets, crickets. I didn't hear back, of course. Now, this thing happened where, I guess it was about two years later, it was just a few months ago, and I was on Facebook, and Facebook did that thing where they kind of redesigned in that way that makes you feel like a senior citizen. You're like, where's (laughs) my?" I can't find my messages, and I can't, I'm not. and I unlocked this, like, sort of spam folder that was basically a bunch of invitations to storytelling shows and burlesque events. It was just all nonstop, non-stop, and then, like, two years earlier, I found this message from Kevin, and the message said, it was great talking to you last night. I hope that we can continue this friendship. Here's my phone number. At which point I just started sobbing at my computer, my dog Charlie wagging me like, what are you doing right now, emotionally? I don't understand. And I just, I really, I really lost it. And um, I sent another message, I was like, are you there? It's me. And I sent it. And, I, and when I pressed send, I really felt like I was sending it into like this digital blue heaven, you know, like looking at these, these underwater pictures of coral and schools of fish. And I decided I need to walk outside, I need to go for a walk. And I walked outside and I was walking around the block and I ran into this uh, neighbor who's lived there for about four years and she saw me I said uh, yeah, I'm not not doing well. I just um I met this guy a couple years ago Kevin And I started to tell her the story and she said oh wait Do you mean Kevin that asshole Kevin? (laughs) Kevin um, a few years earlier had uh, sublet an apartment on our street with his girlfriend Uh, He had terminal cancer and a very short amount of time to live. Uh, They gave up their lease and he wanted to get her settled into a sublet while he took care of some business, uh, move her stuff into a storage unit, and then he would go to Belize and she would find her own place, all her stuff in storage until she found the perfect home. When she came back from her trip and Kevin had left to Belize, she went to the storage unit and it was all gone. Everything she had and possessed was sold. Um, Kevin sold it to feed his crystal meth addiction. Crystal Meth had been a love of Kevin's for about a year. Uh, I don't know if he invented cancer because it explained the massive weight loss that he went through. And I don't know what exactly happened for him. I imagine there was that first time that he told someone that and it felt good because I found out that I was one of dozens of people in our neighborhood that had ran into Kevin and shared this moment and probably gone home and sopped to their partners about mortality and life and how fleeting it is. I was so angry. I felt so manipulated. And ironically, I felt like in all this storytelling classes and all these times I'd use this anecdote that I had sort of like spread a cancer, you know, like this horrible, vicious manipulation. And I had used it to encourage people to talk about things that they didn't understand why they should be sharing about their abusive dads and their weird romantic proclivities and their jobs they hate. And I was like, Kevin, and they would take (laughs) Kevin. And then they would go on stage and they would share. And how could all of that now be so shitty because of this dick? You know what I mean? I was really going through it for a while, and I talked to my friend. And this friend of mine was a person uh, that had been a student of mine, and then she went on to teach storytelling and produce her own storytelling show. And she's like, David, you shouldn't feel bad. I want you to remember two things. One, I remember that story, and that story affected me. Two, I want you to watch a documentary called The Woman Who Wasn't There. The Woman Who Wasn't There is about a woman who started a 9-11 widows support group. Uh, She had been in the first tower and barely escaped alive. Her husband was in the second tower and he perished. She basically did a lot of amazing things and brought a lot of people together and after five years she was busted. Not only did she not have a husband that died in the tower, she wasn't even in America when 9-11 happened. This documentary, and I encourage you all to see it, is really interesting because Throughout it, they interview different people that know her, and there's this one woman, her closest friend and confidant within this community, who says repeatedly how much she hates this woman. I hate her. I hate her. She sobs as she says it. And at the end of the documentary, there's a scene. It's the 9-11 anniversary, and there are people walking in the footprint of the building. People are releasing balloons. They're reading the names. It's this beautiful moment, and the woman is holding her friend's hand, and she says, I just miss her so much. I miss her. Now I'm not trying to compare what I went through to 9-11 by any means, but when that woman said that, I know what she meant, because in my own way, I miss Kevin too. Kevin responded to the message that I sent him. uh, And all it said was, I'm good, how are you? (laughs) This unlocked my full view of his uh, Facebook profile. Uh, He lived back in New York. He's really into foodie now. There's a lot of pictures of like a chocolate cheesecake. Hashtag yummy at Balthazar. Dick. (laughs) Fucking dick. (laughs) Fuck you. But I think about that moment that he gifted me. And it was a lie, but it really, really was a gift because... It was instrumental in me changing the way that I feel about storytelling. It was instrumental in me changing the way I feel about what I do and how I want to spend my life. And in the end, even though the story that Kevin told me was a lie, the way that it made me feel wasn't. And that's what's important. Thanks.
0: It pained me so much to have to put David through that learning experience. But the meth was incredible. Uh, I'm sure my favorite part of this story was the same as yours, when the dogs were sniffing each other's butts. <laughs> all right. All right. Our next storyteller, I love her so much. She is, uh, we've wanted to have her on for quite a while now. And she's just a wonderful voice in the storytelling community. She's a Moth Grand Slam winner. Please welcome to the stage, Tara Clancy!
1: Hi, how are you? How you guys doing? Uh, yeah, my story has nothing to do with dicks, right? You figured that out. Uh... (laughs) Nary a dick in this story, honey. Uh, (laughs) No, you know what? That's actually not true. There is a mention of uh, fake dicks. All right? There's a mention of fake dicks in this story, which, frankly, is just how I like my dicks anyway. But uh, if you were expecting oodles and oodles of dicks, you are not going to get it. Um, Sorry. Okay. Uh, (laughs) The story. Uh, All right. Uh, So... (laughs) years back this friend you know just kind of asked me one night if I had a coming out story and I said uh, no well not really Uh, and she said you know not really what does not really mean Uh, and I said not really means I was nine years old and my mother looked at me and said you're gay (laughs) that's it Um, all right, the truth Uh, truth is, right, you know, I wasn't shocked. I wasn't shocked, you know, um, like the year before I had knocked out Christopher Munoz's two front teeth, um, the year before that I beat up uh, both of the Riney brothers, uh, who were deaf, uh, they deserved it, (laughs) they deserved it, uh, you know, anyway, point is, I, I, you know, the lady had a point, uh, okay. Uh, Now, my mother, uh, it should be said, uh, is this, you know, Brooklyn, Italian, big-haired, long-nailed, you know, lady, right? In other words, not somebody you would look at and think, now there's a person who'd out their nine-year-old, right? (laughs) So, like, how it came to be uh, that she was so, you know, open and aware uh, of my gayness, you know, considering, like, her super, super sheltered upbringing like, became this obsession of mine. And when I say her, her very sheltered upbringing, like, she really, like, she was not, you know, it's one of those childhoods where she wasn't allowed to leave the stoop, you know? She wasn't allowed to play off the block. Uh, she wasn't allowed to go to uh, Coney Island, you know, with her friends or go to the movies. Uh, in fact, my grandmother didn't understand why my mother even wanted friends, you know? She would say, like, uh, what, you don't have enough cousins, you know? It was, like, a very insular life. Um, so, you know, how it came to be that this person, you know, would be so aware of my gayness and seemingly so okay with it became this obsession of mine. Uh, And as I got a little bit older, like, I kind of dug up a couple of things about her. Uh, So, turns out, uh, my mom, in her teenage years, uh, like, had this, you know, uh, like, this secret rebellion. Uh, She basically decided that she was a, a flower child, you know, in her head. You know, like, she wasn't allowed to act on it or anything at all. Like, maybe, you know, she hummed the age of Aquarius to herself before going to bed or something. But, you know, that was it, right? And so then the very next year, when she went into college, you know, she decided, like, she really wanted to do it. She wanted this, you know, this big rebellion. And so literally, day one, she made best friends with this um, alcoholic, heroin-shooting, giant bull dyke uh, named Rosemary, <laughs> of all things, right? Now, that is not how my mother would have described her to you, uh, but that is exactly what she was. Uh, LAUGHTER and I know uh, because when I was 14, my mom decided that uh, I should meet her. <laughs> now by this time, Rosemary had uh, sobered up, got into S&M and moved to L.A. Uh, although I doubt in that order. Right? <laughs> uh, and, you know, it's this beautiful gesture, really, right? Like, my mom decides she's gonna bring me all the way to LA, you know, to meet this person, right? Like, it really, I really think it was a beautiful gesture. It was like, you know, she had taken this little lesbian, you know, w- wolf that she had raised in the captivity of heterosexuality, you know? And she was gonna, like, bring me to the, you know, the wilderness of, of West Hollywood, you know? Like, release me amongst my people, you know? Uh, it was it was beautiful, it was beautiful. and. So here we are We're on this plane We're like Half the way there And my mom Kind of turns to me And she's like Oh listen I forgot to tell you Rosemary said that She, um, she works at a shop And so we're just Going to go to the shop And like hang out Until she gets off And then we'll go back To her apartment And I'm like Yeah whatever Right We land We get to LAX We hop in a cab Forty minutes later We pull up In front of a shop Called 665 One stop From hell <laughs> a high-end S&M sex toy store and here is my mother in a fanny pack and sweatsuit right, jumping into the arms of this giant woman with a tattoo of a spoon and a needle with an X over it on her <laughs> forearm. Right? Now Rosemary, Rosemary takes, our, takes our luggage she wheels it into the store she puts it underneath this shelf stocked with foot-long black dildos and then asks me if I'm hungry. Um, <laughs> I cannot speak. I think I shake my head. No, my mother's like, I could eat, right? Two of them decide, you know, they're gonna go, they're gonna get, you know, sprout sandwiches or juice or whatever you call lunch in fucking L.A., right? But they also decide that they're gonna leave me uh, in the store while they run across the street to get them because they're gonna be right back, right? And so here I am. First five minutes in L.A., I'm 14 years old, I'm manning the sex toy store, right? Uh... I am I am behind the, the register, which is on top of this glass case, right? And there are these little neat rows of uh, ball stretchers and nipple clamps uh, and uh, pinwheels. These things—it's kind of like a like a pizza cutter, but with razor sharp pins. I guess you roll it on yourself. I don't know, right? And inevitably, like 30 seconds after my mother and Rosemary walks out, in walks. A couple and they are very serious and they are very focused and they are in business suits and, and I figure that is why they don't realize that the person they are asking uh, where can we find the puppy cages is 14 years old, and I'm like Petco I, you know, I'm not from around here you gotta... it's fine it's fine, right, place isn't all that big, you know, they find it on their own right, this isn't fucking Macy's or anything you know, they find it and it's fucking classic. The guy's standing up there, the girl drops down onto all fours, she crawls in, he goes, What do you think of that bitch? She woofs, he goes, Well take it. <laughs> you know, but we're gonna we're gonna go to work and so we're gonna be back later to pick it up, you know, on the way. And I'm like, Great, because I also don't know where the gift wrap is, you know. <laughs> well, come on. <laughs> oh, all right. So now <laughs> I got to go take a look at this thing, right? As soon as they leave, I'm like, I got to go take a look at this puppy cage. Uh, And so I I am walking towards the puppy cage department uh, when suddenly I notice that this entire wall, like one whole wall of the store is covered in gas masks. And I'm like, I, you know, I gotta do it, right? I gotta, I, I gotta try one on. And I, I mean, I'm 14, right? It's like I'm not. It's not like I'm into breath play, you know, or, or asphyxiation or something. It's like I'm a little lesbian with a GI Joe collection, you know. I'm like, I'm gonna be, you know, a viper cobra, right? And I, I take the thing off, and I'm like, I'm gonna go look at myself in the mirror with the gas mask on, you know, and I put it over my face, and I take like I think one two steps towards the mirror, and that is when I realize uh, that I can't breathe. Uh, So, you know, I'm trying to get off the strap, but I can't, and now I'm trying to get my finger under the rubber part around the fan, and I can't, and finally I get the, the nose, whatever that is, and I, I start trying to turn it and twist it, and now I am starting to panic, and now I am starting to flail, and I am just like flailing around the sex toy store, right, I'm like whipping myself around and around and around and around, finally go over to the mirror, and I am just banging my head into the mirror, and I'm just like... I am going to break it off, right? And it's like, with what feels like that very last breath eking out, I hear diddling, you know, the little bell on the shop door, right? Which you expect in a candle store in Maine or something, but not here, right? (laughs) (laughs) Fuck that. I put that behind me. I turn. It's it's my mother and Rosemary, and they, they just start, like, running towards me. Like, they throw their sandwiches to the floor, and they're running towards me. And it's like, suddenly, everything goes into slow motion as I realize that the very last thing I may see in my life is from behind the lens of a gas mask that's suffocating me in front of my mother and a bull dyke best friend in the S&M sex toy store she manages for a living, which I was left alone to run, at 14, all within my first five minutes of my first time in L.A. Needless to say, uh, I survived. And I am not a hologram. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and in terms of an actual coming out um, five years later when I you know, had my first girlfriend uh, and I was 19 you know, and I told my mother uh, it was a lot more like admitting defeat than anything else you where know? <laughs> they're going you see, why don't you listen to your mother thank you
0: the hologram of Tara Glancy. I would be remiss as a kink educator not to tell you that breath play is very dangerous. You you should be educated about it before doing anything like putting a gas mask on without getting a little training. Uh, Our next storyteller is, uh, I met him, uh, do people know uh, um, Keith and the Girl? One of the... One of the very best podcasts ever. One of the very first podcasts ever. And uh, he does a lot of work with Keith and Chemda. Uh He has a show that he does with them called That Show with Danny. Please welcome Danny Hatch!
4: Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm the girl. Or, I'm the girl. <laughs> No, I'm very clearly a boy, you can all tell. So I I just want everyone to be honest and on the same page as me before we start. Um, so I remember the exact moment I realized that I needed a cock in my mouth <laughs> for the first time. I was, I was 12 years old and I was watching two twinks blow each other at the same time on the family computer while my mom and sisters in the same room are just watching Grey's Anatomy, completely oblivious <laughs> to, the <laughs> to the perversion of God happening just a few feet away from them. Their words, not mine. Um, that scared the shit out of me because my conservative Catholic Oklahoma upbringing had taught me that this is wrong. This isn't, this isn't what people do. Go to church, youngster, is what they told me. Um, they were very uh, succinct. And that summer, that summer, I even went to Jesus camp, and I anonymously asked the cool rock and roll youth pastor if God loved and respected gay people. And his answer, which he gave that night to the entire camp service, was, no, he does not. And anyone who chooses to engage in said behavior is going straight to hell. So that that really scared me but at the same time it excited me because it was new it was completely foreign I remember my dad caught me in my room with some gay and straight porn I would printed off the internet and it really freaked him out and every couple of weeks after that he'd ask me so how are you doing with the gay thing and I'd be like yeah I'm praying about it I'm trying to talk to God and see uh... see what he thinks uh, <laughs> It takes me between 5 and 30 minutes to pray, depending on how quickly I prayed the time before, and how long it's been, and what kind of Bible I have with me at the time. And as years went on, I realized I'm not even gay. I love women. I'm not physically or emotionally attracted to men at all. I love women. women. Women have made me love the world, and they've made me hate the world, but more importantly, they've made me love it, which is rare for me. I wasn't into men at all, but that didn't stop me from going to a Chelsea video store my very first night in New York City and blowing a guy through a glory hole because <laughs> such are my proclivities. I just I, I'm like a werewolf for dick. Every so often I just need just need a dick in my face. So the summer of my senior year of high school, I'm 17 years old, and my family's going to Virginia to visit my mom's family and stay with them for a few weeks. And one day we go to the mall, and I go off on my own because I'm a 17-year-old man who's capable of handling himself, and within a few minutes I'm jerking off in the bathroom because I'm a 17-year-old boy who can't handle himself at all. And... (laughs) And I'm watching, on my iPod, I'm watching this woman get gangbanged in the face by like six or seven guys. And I'm so, I'm so jealous of her. This is what I want. I want, I'm like, I'm not even jerking off to her. I'm jerking off to the image of me as her doing this. And so after a few minutes, a guy comes into the bathroom and he comes into the stall next to mine. I realize I've been praying to God my entire life for a cock and the Lord hath delivered. And when the Lord gives you a blessing, you don't ignore it. And I I said to myself, Danny, this is the day. You are going to make this happen for yourself. You are finally going to provide oral pleasure for another man who you don't know at all. So I did it like the senators do it. And that I, I... I learned from the best, you guys. And I tapped my foot three times... And then then I withdrew, and sure enough, he tapped his foot at me three times, which, great, but that's not enough of a sign. He might just be, like, really into improv, and he's yes-anding me. I don't know. I need to... to, I I need contact. So what I do is I reach my leg under the stall partition and, like, stroke his shin very sexily and then withdraw. My balls are in his court now. And sure enough, after a beat, he reaches his leg in And he strokes my shin with his adult man businessman shoes In case you guys were wondering if this was another 17-year-old It was not It was an adult Um, And I'm like, all right, great, this is it He must know what is about to go down I feel like I have permission now But I still need to see him I need to make eye contact with him so what I do is I take off my shirt because <laughs> I want him to have the full experience. I want him to have titties to play with if he so desires. <laughs> my, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I'm mostly straight. That's what I would want. I'm just trying to make the experience more hospitable for him. I think Jesus said something about being a good host to your, <laughs> to your guests. Um, and I get... <laughs> I get on my hands and knees on a public mall bathroom floor, pants around my ankles, my dumbbell like dragging along the metal floor, and I I, like pop my head under into his stall. And I make eye contact with him, because that's the name of the game. No, it's not. It's blowing a random guy in a bathroom. But I make eye contact with him. And he's not attractive. He's like, he's very thin, and he's got like... A giant forehead and even gianter ears. He's like in his 40s. He looks a lot like Chuck Palahniuk, the author. And it might have been Chuck Palahniuk for all I know. <laughs> I didn't care. I, I, didn't, I didn't care if he was ugly. I, can't, I didn't come for a romantic experience. I came to get face fucked in public. So, still looking at him, I say, get in here. And then I pop back into my stall. <laughs> That's right. It's the thrill of a chase, you guys. <laughs> I'm going to draw him into me. And I wait, and I wait, and I wait, and nothing happens. And I'm thinking, all right, maybe it's a legal thing. Maybe he can't come into my stall, but I can go into his stall. He can't stop me from that in the eyes of the courts or something. Um, I'm not, if you can believe it, I'm not thinking a lot at this point. So my shirt is still off. My pants are on my ankles. I'm 17 years old. Still, I didn't have a birthday in the stall. And I... And I opened the door. I don't know why I didn't just crawl into his, but I opened the door to go into his stall, and there's a middle-aged man in a business suit at the sink just, like, washing his hands, looking at me like, what the fuck is happening? He's staring at a technically mentally challenged 17-year-old boy with his shirt off and his pants around his ankles. And that's when, like, that's when all the horniness just drains out of me and is replaced by all the common sense in the world. And I'm just like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is the dumbest thing in the world, and I'm right in the middle of it. I am in the thick of the dumbest thing I could possibly be doing right now. I'm in panic mode, so I just wordlessly go back into my stall and put my shirt back on and button up my pants and wait until the coast is clear, and I get the fuck out of Dodge. Because I want, I want nothing to do with this anymore. I'm thinking, like, oh, my God, he's going to get security. They're going to they're gonna tell my mom. We're going to have to, like, leave Virginia so my parents can deal with me. They're going to they're gonna send me back to gay counseling. I don't know what I'm going to do. You guys don't want to go to gay counseling a second time. They're really upset when they when they figure out it didn't work the first time. I've I've read online. <laughs> I assume. So I leave the bathroom and I go to find my mom and I'm like, "Hey mom, the mall's so boring, right? I'm a normal straight 17-year-old boy who finds malls boring. Let's get out of here." And she's like, "All right, I just have to hit up a couple more stores, but we'll leave soon." And I'm like, "Great. No no rush at all." So I start walking around the mall and glancing you know, over my shoulder, and I noticed that the guy from the bathroom stall is following me. Very subtly, like, a store behind me at all times, but he's following me for sure. And we make, like, two laps around the mall, just aimless walking, which is more than a couple stores, Mom, if I can walk two times around the whole mall. But that's neither here nor there. And also, Mom, I hope you never hear of a story. So I'm walking, he's following me. I'm like, this is... Oh, boy, this is a real pickle you've gotten yourself into now, Danny. And eventually the fear... I don't know what this guy's gonna do. I'm expecting him to, like, confront me in the middle of a mall and be like, You owe me a blowjob, young man. We made... We made a pact in there, mister. So eventually the fear of being confronted by him is like way overshadowed by the fear of being in trouble with my mom. So I'm like, I gotta, I gotta end this. I gotta just face this right now. So I turn around and I walk toward him. And as I get to him, I just like wide my eyes and I'm like, mm-mm, 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 Just barely, barely shaking my head, imperceptibly to the common man. We're the only two people in this mall who know what's happening. I guess the guy in the business suit does too, but he's exited stage left already. I'm like, mm, it's off, mm-mm. And he he knows the deal, this guy. Because as I as I pass him, he breaks out into his big goofy grin. He's like, "Hello!" And then we just pass like two ships in the night, like we'd never met each other. And then we went home. I never got caught. It was uh, it was very lucky. But that's that's like putting fire out with gasoline. Like as soon as we left the mall, and seated horniness just flooded right back in. And I, like, I realized that I'd come this close to achieving the only goal I really cared about at 17. The only thing, you know, <laughs> sucking a dick, which everyone can relate to, right, guys and ladies? <laughs> um, I'm like, the blue balls that day were fantastic. So a few months later, it's December, and I'm 18 now, and I, I find myself once again in a public bathroom. This time it's, in, uh, it's the bathroom of a university that was uh, a few miles up the road from my mom's house. So I'd I'd met a guy through Craigslist, which is a great source for young people looking to have illicit public sex. If there's any young people listening, check out Craigslist. And if any lawyers are listening, I didn't tell them that. So I'm in the bathroom with this guy. This, again, not an attractive guy. Again, I don't care. He's like a chubby acne college kid. And um, we're figuring out how to position ourselves so that no one walks in on us. And we finally get it down, and he's like, so do you want to go first, or do you want me to go first? And I know that once, once I come, I'm going to want nothing to do with this. All I'm going to be like, no, thank you. Uh, and I don't want to rob myself of that. I don't want to rob him of that either. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll go first. So I sit down on the toilet, and he's got his back to the stall door, and I unzip his pants, and I take his cock out, and it's really small and disappointing. Um, it was Kevin. And then... Uh, and then... Uh, But then I got him hard, and I was like, whoa, some gerbil, mister. No, so that didn't happen. Um, So I've got his cock out, and I start sucking it. And all I can think in my head is I'm finally doing it. I've achieved the thing I've obsessed over in in private for so long. But I'm, I'm just feeling nothing. It's just not clicking. My mouth is just not that into his cock. And so... He finishes in my mouth, and I spit it into the toilet like a proper lady, and, uh, and then it's my turn, and um, he blows me. After a couple minutes, I come into his mouth, and he spits it into the toilet like a proper lady, and he leaves, and I'm sitting in the stall, and I'm just, I guess I'm having my first existential crisis. The thing that I just ugh, came so close to wanting, and it it wasn't... Anything near what I thought it would be—it was very boring, you guys. I guess I don't call it a blow for a reason. Okay, Samantha Jones from *Sex and the City*, and we'll get the lawyers to deal with copyright law for that one. It was not—it was not good, but that—that that didn't stop me from trying it dozens more times. <laughs> and every time, I'm thinking, you know, this is going to be the one, and it hasn't happened yet, and that's. That was a bummer to me at first, but but I'm I'm now realizing that's okay. I'm there's a lot of time for me to learn to love this or not or learn to not love it. That's that's fine. It's it's still an experience, and the future holds endless possibilities. So uh, I'm Danny Hatch. You know where to find me after the show, guys. <laughs> All right. No, I don't know. Thank you very much.
0: Uh, One of the things that I've kind of noticed over the years is that there tends to be like three circles, three like vague circles of like gay male behavior, and these circles like don't do a lot of crossing from one to the other. The first is men who more or less identify as straight and have secretive sex in really horrible, inappropriate places. Uh, and then men who are just like normal, out gay men who are like all into marriage and vacation in Provincetown. <laughs> and then the third circle is guys like me who are just like filthy, perverted pigs, right? But these three circles don't do a lot of crossing from one to the other. When I was in college, uh, my friend was just like the cutest guy in the world. So adorable, and I had such a crush on him, but he was absolutely turned off by the fact that I was another gay man who identified as gay. Like, no, it had to be guys who identified as straight and were guilt-ridden and would only do things in secretive, weird places. And I remember at one point he was like, Kevin, there's this amazing thing you might not know about, a great place to get sex. He was like, it's up by Bryant Park. And I was like... (laughs) Oh, you mean the pea party that happens in the little basement space at, like, 46 and 6? He's like, no, 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 no. I mean the New York Public Library. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> All right, we have one more storyteller tonight. And, uh, it's a thrill to have her on. I first met her in Boston. It's so funny how many storytellers I meet Who are from New York, but I'm in a different town when I meet them because Risk is doing so much touring now. But she performs here every Wednesday night at nine, and then she performs here every uh, Saturday night at eight. She does freestyle rapping. Please welcome to the stage Rachel Rosenthal.
5: I'm really nervous, so just bear with me. (laughs) And my bat mitzvah when I was 13, my theme was talking on the phone. (laughs) (laughs) I've always been a talker. Uh, I talk to my friends mainly, also my family. I basically talk to everyone about everything that I'm feeling all the time, and I have a lot of feelings, and I talk a lot. When I was in college, I met Zach Schwartz. I told everyone about him. He was a nice Jewish boy. Uh, We became best friends right away, although he immediately fell in love with me because you guys, duh, right? (laughs) Um, But I just wasn't sure if we would ever be more than friends. Uh, But soon after that, I went to my study abroad program in Jerusalem, and when I arrived to my apartment in Israel, there was a huge bouquet of flowers waiting there for me Uh, that Zach had sent, and while I was there for six months, he wrote me letters every single day. One of my roommates in Israel, Alicia, said to me, if you don't marry him, I will. (laughs) So I came back to the States, and uh, we started dating right away, and quickly fell in love. Zach was a very supportive boyfriend. After college, we lived in Boston, and he encouraged me to quit the soul-sucking job that I hated to pursue, one that I loved, but that paid no money. I think I made $17,000 a year at a nonprofit. but um, he wanted to support us. He had this job at the State House. He worked for the Senate, and uh, I always insisted that I paid my rent every month. I didn't want someone financially supporting me, but it actually brought him joy. And uh, he was really proud of this job that he had for the State House. There was one day we were driving near the big beautiful gold domed building and we sat in my car and he didn't have his ID on him so we couldn't go in his office but he pointed to his office window and he said see that window right there babe that's where I work I'm a big deal <laughs> So we had a wonderful life and a wonderful love but I had bad luck <laughs> <laughs> Uh, While I was in Chicago for a comedy festival, I was sitting in a coffee shop with Zach and a bunch of friends and this guy uh, walked in wearing a windbreaker and he sat at a table not too far away from me and he didn't order anything or eat anything. And at one point I I felt him brush against my arm but I didn't think anything of it. Um, But it wasn't until he left that I realized I had been pickpocketed. My wallet had been stolen from my purse. Less than six months later, I called my bank for my account balance, and I find out I have had a series of fraudulent transactions on my account, and there have been numerous withdrawals at ATMs that were not me. So thus began mine and Zach's era of trying to combat identity fraud. We became detectives. We were convinced it was that Chicago guy. I had canceled all of my cards and accounts but my social security card had been in my wallet and so we we assumed it was related to that we just had to prove it it started with a lot of police reports every single time someone accesses your bank and you have to prove it you have to open yet another police report to investigate it was like a full-time job there was this one night where Zach was cooking dinner in the kitchen and I was sitting on the floor of our apartment in um, the back bay, and I had all of my ATM receipts on one side of me and all of my timesheets on the other, and I was trying to compare times to prove to the banks that I couldn't have been taking out the money at that time because I had been at work at that time. It was really heinous. (laughs) Zach was like my personal army. He would call creditors and speak on my behalf. When someone wasn't helping me like they should have, uh, he would like to use his lawyer jargon uh, to try and scare people into helping me. His favorite thing to say was, we could sue you for punitive damages. I I have no idea what that means. (laughs) Meanwhile, I hated being the girl with no money. My friends would ask me to go to dinner. I would always have to say no. I couldn't afford coffee or lunch, much less going out with friends. Zach would pack me lunch every day and cook me dinner every night. Every time I closed an account and opened another one, more fraud would happen. And it wasn't just banks either. Sometimes we would get home from work and my car would be booted with one of those yellow metal boots even though we hadn't received any parking tickets. Eventually, I just gave up on banks, and I closed all of my accounts, and I took all of the money out that I had to my name, which was $1,000, in a bank check. (laughs) A few months later, we're moving into a new apartment, and Zach's coworker, Anne, from the state house, wants to borrow our stereo. It was my stereo, actually. I, I really liked it because you would press a button on the top, and the CD tray would sort of slide out and you would put the CD on it like a tongue and then it would retreat back into the CD player. But anyway, uh, we decided it was one last thing to move, so we lent her the CD player. Um, But meanwhile, I needed that $1,000 check to give to the landlord, and I opened my drawer and I can't find it. And we start tearing the apartment apart. I'm flipping couch cushions, I'm freaked out, I'm crying, I'm like having a breakdown. It's every cent I have to my name is that check. So I call Sovereign Bank and I explain I need a copy, I need to cancel that check, and and I need them to cut me a new check. And the woman on the other end of the phone says, you already cashed that check, sweetie. I felt the tears immediately well up in my eyes and my throat was so dry. Thus began yet another investigation. Around this time, I started to have extreme anxiety all the time and paranoia. My shoulders were so tight, I would walk just sort of hunched over. It became my new normal. I was convinced my mail was being stolen, so I opened a P.O. box and I would zigzag home on the way to the P.O. box in case someone was on my tail and I like needed to lose them. Since I was 13, I'd always talked to my friends about everything, but not anymore. I hadn't talked to my friends in months. The chatty girl from her bat mitzvah who talked to everyone about everything she was feeling all the time, she disappeared. I would let all my calls go to voicemail and I never listened to my voicemails. Either they would be bad news or they would be friends and family checking up on me and asking me what's happening and I just didn't want anyone to know. When it was a random number that would appear in my phone, my stomach would drop to my feet. I lived with this permanent painful lump in my throat. I just kept thinking about this Chicago guy sitting in his stupid apartment in his stupid windbreaker. And I'm like, why are you stealing from a girl who makes $17,000 a year and works at a children's museum? Sometimes I couldn't sleep at night because I was so anxious, and I would just lay in bed crying, and Zach would sing me this song that he definitely didn't know the tune to, and also he was tone deaf, but it made me feel better, and it, it went... Honey pie... You are driving me crazy. I'm in love, but I'm lazy. So won't you please come home, lovey-dovey-dovey-dovey. I I think those are the real words. So eventually Sovereign Bank calls me uh, and they tell me they have the check. So I go in to take a look and I sit down at the desk with the agent and she slides the check across to me and there I see my name has been crossed off and my landlord's name written in and then where my signature should be it's a forged signature and it's Zach's handwriting So uh, I go home and I am sitting on the bed with him and I'm screaming at him, how could you take this money if you know if I was going to give money to anyone in the world, any penny I had, I would give it to you and you saw me tearing apart the apartment and freaking out about all of these money problems, why would you do this? And he says, uh, tears are streaming down his face and he's like, I have something to tell you and I don't want to tell you because if I tell you, I'm afraid that you're going to leave me. And I tell him, I'm not going to leave you. You're all that I have. And I love you. And so this is when he tells me that he has impulse control disorder, which is a disease that manifests itself in many different ways in different people. So like a pyromaniac can't control the impulse to light fires. And he was diagnosed as a kid, and he's done a lot of dumb things over the years because of it. And in any case, I, I look at him, and I'm like you have an illness. I'm not going to leave you. I will go to therapy with you. I will help you. The only thing that I will not stand for is the lying. If you act on an impulse that you can't control, don't lie. Tell me right away and we will figure it out together. And he looks at me and he says, Rachel, I will never lie to you ever again. So life goes back to normal for the most part. We finally get that stereo back from Ann because I was bugging him about it for months. I still have no bank and no money. And at this point, I feel like the fraud is affecting my loved ones. My cousin has had some check fraud and Zach has had some check fraud. And I just feel like my problems are seeping into my loved one's lives. And without me, they would be better off. Basically, everything seems horrible except for Zach. He's the only good thing that I have. He would leave me love letters around the house, and I would find them throughout the day. And I found one recently when I was preparing for this, and it says, Dear Love, My heart is quite literally overflowing with love for you. You are my joy and passion. Have a brilliant day. I'll miss you. Kisses and hugs, ZFS. Zach soon gets recruited by the John Kerry presidential campaign, and one afternoon on a beautiful snowy day, he gets down on one knee in Boston Public Garden and proposes. And I feel like it's the first light that I've had in my life in so long. It's been so dark, and I've been so unhappy for so long. And it was the first day I experienced like true happiness, and my shoulders retreated for a second. It lasted less than 12 hours. The next morning at 7 a.m. my phone rings and it's my landlord, which is strange because he never calls me. He only deals with Zach because I don't deal with any of that stuff. And I pick up the phone and he's screaming. I don't know what the hell you and your boyfriend are trying to pull, but you're being evicted and you owe me $13,000 and I swear to God I'm gonna sue you and all I hear is $13,000, $13,000. I make only a little bit more than that a year and I'm like, look, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's like, you're a liar just like your boyfriend and I don't understand why all of a sudden you would pay me rent one month when you haven't paid me rent in a year and that's when I realized that was the one month I mailed our rent instead of giving my rent to Zach to mail, I mailed it one month, and I hang up the phone and I go in our bedroom and I start pulling out all of these um, filing cabinet drawers that I've never looked in before because honestly I didn't want to I didn't want to see bills or receipts or anything pertaining to money and I find Gap credit cards and Banana Republic and American Express and I'm cutting them with scissors like I'm in a movie and I'm like this crazy wife who like <laughs> discovered whatever and I'm throwing them around and I I leave the room and I go in the bathroom for privacy I close the door and I sit on the floor and I call my mom. And I finally tell her what's happening. <laughs> and I tell her about my identity fraud and about the eviction and about Zach's impulse control disorder. And I think she'll understand, like he has a, an illness. And it's not until I'm actually physically saying these words and they're coming out of my mouth that I realize just how fucked my life is. And my mom, to her credit, says very calmly, This doesn't sound like the best way to start a marriage. (laughs) Why don't you come home for a few days and we'll talk about it. (sighs) Mom's no best, you guys. (laughs) So I hang up the phone and I go in the bedroom to tell Zach and he is um, in a ball on our bed and he's rocking back and forth and I think he's sort of in the middle of some sort of... Breakdown, and I say, "Look, I'm just gonna go home for a few days." And he's like, "You don't even know. You don't." He's just freaking out. He's just interrupting me every single time I try to say something. He's like, "Zach, wait, you? you're you gonna leave me?" And I don't even know what to say. I don't know what's real, and so I just call his dad in D.C. and I, I'm talking to his dad, and I'm like, uh, "Well, I, we're being evicted, but I feel like it's okay because uh, impulse control disorder." And he's like, "Don't tell him!" And I don't even know what to say, so I hand him the phone, and I go in the living room and I call Zach's therapist, and I tell him what's going on and he says the thing that you never want someone to say to you which is do you think he's going to hurt himself and I say "Uh, no I don't think so and I hang up the phone and that night Zach's dad and brother fly in from DC I I go to a comedy show (laughs) I was not good So uh, we decide, um, all right, I'm going to go home to my parents in Connecticut for a few days. You go home to your family in D.C. for a few days. We'll talk about stuff. We'll figure this out. And, uh, and that's what we decide to do. So we kind of say a quick goodbye, and I go home. And I've never, ever seen him ever again, ever Six months later, I'm living with roommates, and I decide to play a CD, and I press the button on my CD player, and it pops open on the top. Instead of sliding out like a tongue, and I realize, wait a minute, this isn't my stereo. Anne didn't give us back my stereo, and then that's when the real movie flashbacks start occurring, and I realize, Anne didn't borrow our stereo. Anne didn't exist. There was no Anne. I never met his coworkers. He never worked at the state house. I looked at his office from the car, and we pointed at the fucking window. He never worked for Carrie. He didn't work. We would get up together every morning, and he would get dressed for work, and he would pretend to go somewhere. I have no idea where he went. He created people and jobs and stories, and we were together seven years. We dated five years. I have no idea which parts of my life were real. Now it's been almost 10 years (laughs) and uh, that girl from my bat mitzvah is back (laughs) and talking to everyone about everything that she's feeling all the time. So much so that I'm on stage telling the story publicly for the first time in front of all of you. So thank you for listening. I just, uh, I'm sorry, I just really quickly wanted to say that a lot of people helped me get through what I went through and most of them are in the audience tonight here from all over and they like all came in and I just want to thank you guys. Thank you for being here.
0: for this week folks this is Dick Diver behind me now see that we got another dick in there that's like six dicks in a four dick salad like I said before don't forget we are coming to Atlanta and Minneapolis and Albuquerque and Seattle so for crying out loud go to riskdashow.com tour and find out when we're coming to town also pitch us your stories hey Pitch us your Halloween stories, too, because we're running late on putting our Halloween episode together. If you are out there anywhere in the world and you have a scary story, scary in any way, pitch it to us at the submissions page at risk-show.com slash submissions. Don't forget, we are listener supported. We are a part of the Maximum Fun Network of Podcasts and we dearly need your help to keep all this going. I very sincerely mean that. We need the financial assistance of the people who love what we do. We don't have all the resources of those other storytelling shows on NPR that you might listen to. So go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and become a uh, member or make a one-time donation and be sure to earmark your contribution for RISK. Folks, today's the day. Take a RISK. Albuquerque, November 13th, Minneapolis, December 4th, Seattle (laughs) the 12th. I don't know what the fuck is going on with the volume knob on my Macintosh, but it's just going bleep, 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 left and right, and I'm very confused. I hope you can't hear it, uh, but my Macintosh is currently being a dick.